I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. I'm Sean Thomas, Garden Visits Editor of our magazine for members, The Garden. Today's podcast is steeped in the rich sights, smells and tastes of the season as we sample some of the highlights of the recent London Autumn Garden Show with its fascinating displays, unusual nurseries, talks and practical workshops. Later on, we'll be hearing from our inspirational floral artist-in-residence whose show-stopping flower pieces were attracting attention both inside and outside the exhibition halls. Plus, bird-watching and comedy legend Bill Oddie shares some memories of his personal gardening pleasures. Filling both the Lindley and Lawrence halls in London's Vincent Square, the autumn show is always full of surprises and ambitious feats of design. This year, visitors were treated to the breathtaking sight of an edible indoor forest created by designer John Davis. It was an atmospheric world of unusual and seasonal edibles, from crab apples, herbs and Chilean guavas to an array of hostas and fungi. Throughout the show, John led visitors on guided tours to explain the principles of productive permaculture and forest gardening that were the basis for the design. When you are putting together a forest garden, you have to have a real kind of a depth of knowledge of the space and, and time. And it's about encouraging people to take more time and think about the spaces they're using and connect to those spaces. So when we created and put this installation together, we wanted to create that feeling of a bit of age. So we've dressed the space with a lot of leaf litter. We've got the mushrooms and the moss and the lichen here as well, and lots of rotten wood, which will make it look that aged and, and feeling that you get, that kind of a holistic feeling you get from being in a forest environment, but also just knowing that this is a really productive environment where there's loads of different gourmet produce here that you can really enjoy. So a forest garden is uh, working with the ideas of how a forest works itself. So you have a, a tiered system in a forest. So if you look at the, the dynamics of it, you'll have the higher trees and then you'll have the canopy trees. Then you may have shrubs, herbaceous layers, ground cover, and then there'll be roots and mushrooms. Uh, and there'll be, be some vines involved in that. And so what a forest garden works with is trying to understand that dynamic and how we can recreate that in a, quite a small space to get as much produce going on that works together. And the idea is to create and design self-sustainable systems. So you're looking at how nature does things and what kind of plants work together and what kind of environments so that you can have a little bit less maintenance, you don't need as much control and let things work together in harmony. And that also really encourages biodiversity into the space, um, which helps with the health of the general uh, landscape. 
Um, so within this space, we've, we've created different planting zones. So we have some open aspect zones where you can have more of your uh, herbaceous and your flowers and things like uh, rosemary and thyme, and so quite open and well-drained. But then we've also created these beautiful contours in the space that then lead down into a bog garden aspect where you can have really beautiful water edibles. Uh, and there's a load of ornamental edibles in here as well. So a lot of plants that you will see in your garden and not necessarily know are edible. So we have like the Liriope muscaria, which has got the edible root. The hostas, when they come up in the spring, they have a lovely leaf that emerges and you can take those and put them into a stir fry or something. The sedum leaves have got a lovely edible leaf that you can have in a salad. They have a really nice lemony taste to them. And then we've got a lot of mint to kind of work as a matrix, strawberry plants to work as a matrix that knits the, the soil together, keeps the weeds at bay. But that's not to say that we have also left the weeds as well because a lot of them have a nutritious value and are edible. So we have in here our dandelions, our clover, um, our wood sorrel, we have cow parsley. So what's really uh, interesting about this space as well is that most of these edibles that we have are perennial. What you do, you just put it in the, the ground for, you know, what the first year until they settle in. But then some of these stock here you could have for 15 years with taking harvest every time, but you don't have to do anything too, you know. There's things like skirret here, and skirret is a, a Tudor uh, root veg that we used to eat before potatoes. Uh, and it's kind of a cross between a, a carrot and a parsnip. Really interesting, thin, long, white, but quite sweet, you know. It's got a beautiful umbellifer on it as well, so it's a really nice edimental, you know, it's got a really beautiful ornamental quality, but then it's also got this really tasty produce underneath. Uh, Stachysophini, which is uh, the Chinese artichoke, again, you've got these really cool, they're like water chestnuts, and they, they look a uh, little like grubs, you know. Really interesting food, really different, so easy to grow. And so many of these things in general, you know, we're talking... I think there's something like 50,000 edibles uh, that, that are in, in the world and we only cultivate something like 100. Um, so we're trying to promote the idea that there's a lot more out there than we know, than we're used to. We need to educate to kind of really expand that. And at the moment with this garden, we're searching a little bit more towards the gourmet produce, maybe the things that chefs might work. You know, like we've got a pine tree here, you know, not many of us are going to start kind of chomping on the, the, the needles, but they're actually edible. They can be used in things like pastas and infuse the food even the inside of the bark uh, gourmet chefs are now infusing their food with to get that real forest taste you know which is really interesting we've got juniper in here uh, loads of different crab apples uh, rowan so the sorbus edulis is edible uh, hawthorns loads of things to make jellies and jams uh, we've got hops growing up here there's even kiwis which is uh, an interesting one and not necessarily you think could grow but you know the warmer the weather is uh, these days we're seeing that we're able to get it to that fruiting position and if we're creating our own little microclimates in London especially and you're getting against the hot wall they're going to be fruiting up so it's interesting to see how things are changing there as well you know natural mimicry is something that's very interesting and understanding how nature does things uh, and so a lot of observation of nature um, is something we should get more into you know seeing how things do it rather than putting our own imprint and thinking oh that needs more more compost or in there and more feeding or I'll spray the insects off that one because that's going to do that actually observing how things work in their natural environment and what they like uh, and encouraging a really biodiverse space where there's rotten logs for insects and there's boggy areas for frogs and uh, pollinators for all, all different kinds of insects because insects are really on the decline uh, and we really really need to encourage this to really take off you know getting the bees in here to take care of the uh, the fruiting trees etc so if you look at a 
biodiversity system within a garden space, if you can create a really interesting, diverse range of planting, then you're going to get a diverse range of insects that are going to take care of that environment and create a really nice natural balance, you know? And so you may be worried that some, your, your aphids are over something, but then the ladybirds will take care of that and the frogs will take care of the slugs and it'll create a really nice balance, you know? John Davies in his edible forest garden. One of the highlights of the London shows are the practical workshops. These masterclasses offer expert, hands-on demonstrations of a range of activities, from creating decorative flower globes to specific horticultural techniques. One of the most popular this year was the avocado workshop. Hi, I'm Joseph Ford and today we're standing outside the Lindley Library in Westminster and uh, we're at the RHS Taste of Autumn show which is really quite a beautiful show at this time of year obviously with the uh, fruits and flowers and all the fantastic foliage that's going on inside. It looks a real treat. I'm uh, doing a workshop for the RHS, which is a free workshop, which is quite interesting actually that they provide all these lovely things inside the show for people to be interactive with. And the one I'm doing is actually based on sowing avocados from seed. And they really like this idea at the moment because it's becoming very fashionable again. In fact, if you sort of remembered back in uh, back in the day when we were kids and we used to stick the three... Um, cocktail sticks into your avocado and then suspend it above some water and then it would grow away which was really quite fun we find that was going to be a health and safety nightmare so in fact I, today i am just halving the avocados letting everybody take the avocado away and eat it for their lunch and then we're sowing the seed in some compost and giving it to, to them to take home so that they can grow it in their windowsills first of all let's get the germination right so in fact actually uh, they germinate much much better and much quicker if they come straight out of the fruit i have a massive basket of fruit on the table which is really really fantastic looks amazing and then people are just grabbing their individual fruit halving them and the reason that's really good is because that keeps the stone moist and ready to germinate immediately afterwards if they dry out at all then of course that's going to inhibit their germination chances so the old technique of sort of uh, suspending it above water with the cocktail sticks was a sort of 50-50 chance. If you didn't have the water right up to the bottom of the, the stone to the seed, then it wasn't necessarily going to automatically root down. Whereas this way is putting it into the compost and keeping it moist and keeping it tied up in a plastic bag and keeping it really, really warm, then that's going to really ensure that you're not going to have to worry about keeping it moist throughout its germination period and it will just romp away and grow. And then when it does start growing, of course, then yeah if you're not going to give it enough light then it's only going to have one or two leaves on it if you put it out in the light and then it's going to really flourish it will start bushing out and, and filling out with foliage and, and looking amazing for you and then of course it will just want to push up and away if you think about in their natural habitats they are forest trees of course and when you're a young tree you're going to be surrounded by so many other mature trees around you and so your first initial growth is going to be of going straight up and not producing any side branches and of course we want side branches on it because they have all the beautiful foliage and they keep it nice and down at our eye level so we can appreciate how beautiful the plant is so if you cut it by half the, the shoot when it's produced a couple of leaves cut that shoot by half its length it should sprout out and it should produce much shorter shoots either side which can then be pruned again in the following part of the season and you can get a much bushier plant at a lower level Ah, can you get them to fruit? Um, <laughs> that is a tricky question because I think actually earlier this year in the Garden magazine there was an incidence of the Chelsea Physic Garden telling us that one of their avocado trees actually did produce some fruit. 
Whether or not that fruit, what are we now, end of October, has actually ripened is another matter entirely because really they are going to want a good four to five months of solid temperatures around about you know 25 degrees in order to ripen those fruit and if we're growing from some seed we're going to be waiting about 20 years for them to actually produce fruit so really it's not something that we can hope for we're only going to get a novelty foliage plant unless you've got a heated greenhouse all year round and you're growing a higher mountain cultivar of avocado such as holiday or gwen which are semi-pendulous plants and also much shorter growing plants and they can survive these lower temperatures and they do produce fruit much more easily so they potentially as houseplants for the UK climate will be a better choice for producing fruit these are really ancient plants which we've been using for food since the time of the Aztecs so yeah they're they're sort of a little bit of a, a nice thing to have in your house Joseph Ford at the avocado workshop If you've been inspired by the sounds of the autumn show, why not check out some of our other London shows? See rhs.org.uk forward slash London shows for more details. Here you'll find highlights and information about shows past, present and future, including our new urban garden show, which will take over from the autumn show in October 2018. You can also find full details of RHS events across the country at rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Few visitors to the show or many commuters passing Victoria Station in the preceding days can have missed the stunning flower installations of the 2017 RHS London Floral Artist in Residence, Fiona Harsa Bazzoni. Her inspirational pieces push creative boundaries and transform what many think of the possibilities of flower arranging. The exciting thing for me being the floral artist in residence is using these amazing halls here, the horticultural halls. They're two huge spaces which for somebody working with flowers is quite challenging because obviously flowers are fairly small and you've got an enormous face to, to fill, to make something impactful, you need to do something really pretty grand. So that's been quite challenging and really exciting. I've absolutely loved it. It's been really good for me. So the first one I did was in February and the show fell over February the 14th, so it's over Valentine's. So I thought, well, I'm not going to put a cheesy heart, but I'd really like to do a heart. So I did anatomical heart, but I did a really giant one. So it was three metres by three metres made out of willow because in February I don't have many flowers on my flower farm. We wove almost like a basket a giant anatomical heart and we used cotinus dogwood as kind of the blood arteries on the outside of it and it was very dramatic and then all around it because the flower that we do have in February is cyclamen so we had them in little kokodamas which is kind of you you, you um, take them out of their pots and wrap them in moss and then we had them hanging all around like sort of blood drops around the heart so it was huge it was a massive installation and we had the help of the floral students from the Westminster College which was invaluable because it was so huge and it took a really long time to hang 600 cyclamen like blood drops the second one was in the Lawrence Hall and you have to work with the where you're going to 
put your piece of art. So in this case, it was going to be hung above the steps. That's I knew I knew that's where it was going to be positioned. So I had to design something that would fit and look good there. So I made an eight meter wave, and I made that with using willow and bamboo. So I made the structure, and and then we again working with the students. We put it all together here and we wove more bamboo and willow through it. And then we filled it with spring flowers. And again, I did the Kokodama thing. So I dug up bulbs of things that were in flower. So I had hyacinth and narcissi and ranunculus and that kind of thing. I think I had some anemone as well. And I dug them up and I put them in, in moss. So it kept them fresh and it kept them alive during the installation. And so they were woven into the wave that hung above the steps. The theme for Cardiff this year was magical Welsh themed. And I thought, well, I could do a, I could do a daffodil or I could do a leek or something. And I thought, no, no, I need to do something conceptual. So I did a song. And I did that in conjunction with pure greenhouses. And they have these um, greenhouses that don't have frames. So they're just basically glass. And they're very, very beautiful. It's a bit like... A it's like an invisible plinth so for me it was a very exciting thing to work with and then I had the the song was a kind of conceptual idea of like Welsh music and it went through the greenhouses because they were set up next to each other a row of three and so it kind of went through as 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 I imagined the sound would get louder and louder it got bigger and bigger as it went through the greenhouses the flowers I grow are not like European standards, so they're not straight. They haven't had to fly halfway across the world. I let them do their own thing, so they're much more natural. They have a kind of curve to them or a movement. And I think that's, for me, that's really important. That makes it, I feel more creative using something that's had its own life and hasn't been forced into restrictions that you need if you're growing things on a, on a really... You know, if you're doing it on a really commercial basis, you need your, the stem count and you need to grow as many as you can and they need to fit into the boxes and travel as far as they can. So I don't have to do that. So I'm growing on a much smaller scale and I can go with the curviness of what I get. 2017 RHS London Floral Artist-in-Residence, Fiona Harsa bizzoni As before, you can find more information and photos of her work on our website. That's almost all we have time for in today's podcast. But before we go, a word from a wildlife legend. The talks program at the London shows is always a big draw for visitors. This year featured renowned speakers including Roy Lancaster, Anne Swithenbank and passionate wildlife lover and broadcaster Bill Oddie. We joined the queue of admirers waiting to share their gardening experiences with him and asked him about his new book and his lifelong passion for wildlife and gardening. There's an awful lot of books about attracting birds to your garden and all that sort of thing. Lots of them, hundreds of them. Why publishers keep doing it? It's basically the same book. You can't do something new about it. And I really wanted to write about what a garden means to people, or means, in this case, to myself, because I know myself better than I know most people, um, because it's going to change during the years, you know. So in a way, it's a sort of horticultural autobiography, I guess, in a sense, you know. So my gardens down the years couldn't be more different. I mean, I started off in industrial Rochdale as um, a little boy, that's how I started. And uh, it wasn't a garden, it was a yard, a concrete yard with a big wall around it, um, which looked a bit like a somewhere prisoners should exercise. And um, 
nothing to do with wildlife or anything else. It didn't have anything to do with anything except where to store things. Uh, after that, there was uh, a move to Birmingham, on the edge of Birmingham. My dad had sort of got promotion in his job as an accountant and uh, it wasn't a bad garden quite a big size garden you know getting on for sort of half a tennis court or more that sort of thing um, but the again nobody looked after it so it was all overgrown which as far as I was concerned I wasn't an avid naturalist right away but as far as I was concerned it was rather nice you know there were places to hide and, uh, and you used to get um, down in a sort of broken lettuce frame we used to get hedgehogs down there which is lovely and the grass didn't do much it was just there and it grew basically and just grew and grew and grew and um, the only person who seemed to seem to object to this my dad just it's like he didn't notice the garden just didn't want to know but my granny who lived with us um, did and she kept saying when are you going to cut that lawn you know oh that lawn looks terrible it's, it's shameful it is you know the neighbours are laughing at it we got all this sort of stuff but neither dad or i did anything until <laughs> but one day i came back from school and uh, i looked through the kitchen window i could see this grass which is very long by then just waving gently uh, it reminds me or would now of a tiger which you can't see but the grass is moving you know i've seen that uh, but it wasn't a tiger it was my granny. <laughs> she was on all fours, cutting the lawn with a pair of scissors. <laughs> I, st I, I still don't think that we did much about it, but I did. I, it, it, it began to seep into the bird thing because um, I started... Uh, what they call ringing birds and you used to be able to buy these little plastic coloured rings and we sort of I made a sort of homemade trap which was just a like a box with a, a swivelled lid at the front and a stick propping it up and a piece of string going behind the shed and granny was the stringer or <laughs> the puller the puller or stringer what am I am I a puller or a stringer I don't know and I said just yank it yank it I'm not a Yankee, don't call me that. And uh, <laughs> and when Little Bird would land in it, it was very successful. And I'd say, Paul! <laughs> Granny sort of yanked this thing, it feathers all over the place. But I caught, I caught quite a lot of birds. None were harmed. Uh, I put the coloured rings on, and Granny was the scribe, the keeper of data, as it would be called now, the age and size and, uh, and, weight, and all, weight and all that sort of thing. So that, that garden was used, but not as a garden, not at all, not at all. And finally... <laughs> See, you go on for hours on this one. Well, I said a majority of the book, or half the book, um, is uh, covers by those first three or four gardens. But the, the final big chunk is about the garden I have now, uh, or more accurately, the garden I've had for 30-odd, 40 years, something like that. You know, my second wife and I, Laura, is the wife, not me. And... Um, you know, we, we've lived there for a long time. She's never taken much interest in it, I have to admit, and that's not a criticism, it's just not quite her thing. But on the other hand, it didn't stop her commenting. <laughs> so, after about 10 years of leaving me to do whatever I was doing, she came out in the garden one day and said, oh. she said, Bill, this garden is getting ludicrous. To which I said, well, 
thank you, because that's exactly what I want. Uh, she never went there again. And uh, but it, it's it's hence the title of, of the book. And but the development in the book is about you know the ways I've changed it over the years. The silly areas within it notably uh, this is a bit of a cliche but not on this scale notably at least a hundred gnomes all gathered together which we um, that was Laura's fault as well though because we asked for at our wedding we asked not for normal wedding presents you know no cutlery and linen but um, could we have a gnome bring a gnome so everybody had to bring gnomes and most of them did some couldn't bring themselves to do it <laughs> and the saddest thing was when somebody would come in and say hey i bet you haven't got one oh and they'd say there's another six the same and like that. but it, it backed up something i've kept going that just having one or two things dotted around doesn't actually have much impact and i've applied the same principle you know i mean one gnome is funny a two um, is not particularly funny two is sort of yeah okay but if you've got a hundred that's really something um but it's the same with and false animals, which again, I've got masses of these things. Um, everything from sheep to a gorilla to lots of false birds and things like this, lots of decoys on the little ponds and that sort of thing. And if you just put one there, you see, it's like people obsess these days in their gardens. You go into a garden centre, I do fairly often, and I also come to shows fairly often. I've been to Chelsea a couple of times and Hampton Court that sort of thing and you see you know three meerkats four meerkats and emotion like that you say. Uh, you get 24 <laughs> it would be far better feature if there was a little army of meerkats there bill oddy well i'm afraid that's all we have time for in this edition of the rhs gardening podcast we'll be back in a fortnight Until then, remember you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. For now, from me, Sean Thomas and all the podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50.
With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 